If you really want to get to know someone, I often joke, go to a third world country with them and spend a week in uh, some very strenuous uh, circumstances and situations there. And what I'm talking about, I have done with Brother Don Graham, our preacher this evening. Brother Graham is a dear friend, and he's proven his friendship many times in different ways throughout the years, not only to myself, but to our pastor. And that has meant a lot. And uh, friends who are faithful and are loyal are always precious, and they're gifts of God. Everything you know to be true about Brother Don Graham is true. And uh, uh, last spring, we had the opportunity to do a preaching assignment together, and the way it works, Brother Graham, how many years have you gone down to Haiti? Uh, 14 years, and uh, they've had a mission there with Good Shepherd Mission that we support here at our church. But every spring, actually more than just in the spring, but every spring specifically, a group of pastors go down, most of them from the central Alabama area, and they they tag team, they're together, and they will do a whole week of meetings uh, there together, preaching the Word of God. And uh, I had the privilege to be assigned with Brother Graham uh, this past spring, and I learned a lot. The church that we were at was on the top of a mountain, and it just had a beautiful view. The church had been closed up for, for many years. Uh, I'm not sure how many years. We were doing some prep work, passing around flyers and letting people know about the meeting in the days before the meeting itself. And we arrived at the top of the mountain there, and we see a big, huge tomb, in a sense. It was a, it was a grave, and a delicately... delicately uh, just ornate and, and all these things. And the guy that was with us said, you know who that is, don't you? And we said, no. And he said, that's the former pastor. And the villagers, they, they killed him about 10 years ago. I don't, we don't know what the whole story is. And the church just immediately shut down. And a church, it turned into a church plant. Another church in another city had the desire to see a church there again. And so they recently started it up again. And the Lord's just doing a, a marvelous work of grace there. So Brother Don and I were there that whole week. And I have to admit to you, Brother Don, the whole time I just thought, what if, you know? (laughs) This was told to us after we had already gone through the village and passed out all the flyers. And I just thought, you know, why died, what if, my goodness. But that week to get to spend it with Brother Don was an amazing experience, and I learned a lot getting to see his life. And uh, again, you want to learn a lot about someone, find out who they truly are, go spend a week with them without air conditioning somewhere in a third world country, and you will really find out if what they preach is real. And I'm here to tell you tonight, it is. And it's our honor, it's our privilege to hear him preach tonight, to bring the word of God to us. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon him. Father, again, we love you, and we just commit our dear brother uh, to you, Lord, and pray that you would use him, Lord, as a vessel, as a messenger. Would he truly be the Lord's messenger in the Lord's message this evening as the text that we read? Lord, we pray that we would have ears ready to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Joy to be here tonight. I greet you in the lovely name of our Savior, and I trust that God will speak to your heart tonight in a very special way. You got your Bible open, the book of Haggai. When you get back there, the chapter that Brother Legrand has read for us will be our chapter for the evening study. And have you ever struggled, if you've ever preached, do you ever struggle over selecting a title for your sermon? Uh, This is one of those nights where I've got several titles, so... I'm going to give them to you and let you pick out the one you like best. Is that all right? I'd love to call my study tonight, When We Forget God. That's what it's all about. That's, that's a good title, When We Forget God. I, I'd also like to call it Prophet or Prophet. P-R-O-F-I-T or P-R-O-P-H-E-T. Prophet or Prophet. 
I'd like to call it um, Gone with the Wind. It's one of my favorite texts and a favorite movie, and I'd like to call it Gone with the Wind. My wife would have me call it what it ought to be called, and that's the text that I choose tonight, Consider Your Ways. Consider Your Ways. Throughout this great, great writing of Haggai, that phrase reoccurs. Look with me, please, in chapter 5 of verse 1. Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Now, look up to verse, verse 7. Once again, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. The word occurs in chapter 2, verse 15. And again in verse 18, consider your ways. That's a strong word from God to us tonight, and I hope that it will arrest your attention. It is my prayer that you'll go to sleep tonight thinking about those words ringing in your heart, consider your ways. I hope if you have a dream tonight while sleeping that you'll find yourself dreaming about the text, consider your ways. I trust that before we get through here tonight, it will be printed indelibly upon your heart. Consider your ways. The great book of Haggai, a little known to the typical uh, church member, is scintillating and exciting any way you cut it, any way you look at it. 38 verses, two small chapters, and yet it has so much for us. Have you ever sat down at the end of the month paying your bills? or at the end of the year evaluating where it all went at tax time, and throw your hands up, hands up and said, where'd all the money go? Have you ever had that experience? Smile at me if you have. I can't see you out there tonight for some reason. Where did the money go? Have you ever come to the end of the month and found out a whole lot more bills need to be paid than you've got money to pay them with? Any of you ever been there? It's called inflation in some places. 500 years before the coming of Christ, the great nations of the earth were experiencing inflation and financial chaos and difficulty. It is for us to understand that God is involved in all of the issues of our life. God is indeed sovereign over every area of our life. He is deeply involved as the creator of his universe. He did not just create this universe and throw it out in, into orbit and forget about it. He's deeply involved in every aspect of our nation and its history and whatever's going on. In Ezra chapter 2, verse 64, you find that 42,306 Jewish people were allowed to return from Babylonian captivity following the 70 years of paying the penalty for their sin, and that exile into Babylon was over 70 years, just as Jeremiah and others had predicted. 42,000 of them came to begin with, with Zerubbabel and Joshua, and returning with the people of God. 500 years approximately, the, the culture was experiencing financial inflation. The Jews left Babylon to come back to rebuild their city. 
with the primary assignment, rebuild the temple. Rebuild the temple. You open your Bible to Ezra, first three chapters, and you will find the record of Zerubbabel and his people coming back, the first wave of patriots to come back from Babylon, back to Jerusalem, to a destroyed landscape, and start from scratch to rebuild their city and their temple. Initially, they were quite excited. The adrenaline was flowing, the happiness and excitement was there, and they went to work. They got the foundation poured, they got the foundation finished, they built the altar, they put the altar in its place, just with the foundation poured, they celebrated, they had a grand time of worship, and then they began the hard work. And it wasn't long until they found themselves discouraged, for as you read around those chapters 1 through 4 of the book of Ezra, you will find that the enemy attacked on every front, from within, from without, every way imaginable, to get the people to stop building the temple. They use letters, accusation, slander, threats, you name it. And finally, the Jewish people caved in. And at the end of chapter 3, they stopped the work of rebuilding the temple. Between the last verse of chapter 3 of Ezra, the first verse of chapter 4, 15 years elapsed. And you put the book of Haggai right in that 15-year period. And so this four sermons preached by Haggai was designed to call the people of God back to the task of building the house of God and finishing the project. Do you recognize that it's true with most all of us and most all churches that it's a whole lot easier to start something well than to finish something well. That's difficult for a lot of us. I don't know about you, but I'd like to finish well. You've heard me say that a lot. That's a desire of my heart with each passing day. As I get older and as you get older, I, I hope it's your prayer and plea to the Father that you will finish well. F.B. Meyer said he didn't want his life to end up in a swamp. I don't want to end up in a swamp. Any of you? The people began well, but they didn't finish well. They walked away from the assignment. They walked away. They were afraid. They had been threatened. They just backed off and quit and gave up. So God raises up Zechariah, excuse me, Haggai and Zechariah to preach to the nation. And we have the record of Haggai's four little sermons. He dates each one of them. It's a fascinating study. Now, ere I proceed, I want to tell you what tickles me to death. Do you mind if I have a good time tonight, huh? Is that all right with you if I do? I, I, you, you've proven to me you're not going to get happy with me sometime, but I'm just going to get happy anyhow. I want to remind you that when God saw a need to get that building going again, who did he turn to? He turned to a preacher. Amen? Say amen. I'm teasing with you, but I hope you'll see the significance of that. He didn't turn to the preacher to lay bricks and mortar and give them uh, diagrams for the building. If he's like most preachers I know, he couldn't do that. But he was called upon to address that lethargic nation of people and call them back to the task of God. And upon the conclusion of the preaching of the word of Haggai, within three weeks, the people had reassembled, went back to work, 
finish the project, they dedicated the temple, and they celebrated. Don't ever underestimate the power of the preached word of God. Amen. I know you people believe that. You've proven that to me, and I thank God for that. But I want to stress it once again. Never underestimate the power of the preached word of God. God used Haggai and his preaching in four brief sermons to call the people of God back to their initial task. So with that said, I want to show you, first of all, a word about the excuse that the people gave for quitting on the job. The excuse they gave. Look at verse 2. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. It was fall, harvest time. They decided they needed to get back to their primary interests and that was making a living and making some money and they abandoned uh, their assignment from God. And they gave excuse by saying, well, it's just not time. Have you ever heard any Baptist talk like that? Now, I know it wouldn't happen at Glen Iris, but it happens everywhere I go. I meet a few Baptists along the way who say, well, preacher, just not time. Let's just wait. Let's just wait. It's just not time. What a wimpy excuse. We'll always look for an excuse. If you look hard enough, you'll be able to find it. They decided they would better spend their time getting back to their own families, their own houses, their own needs, and it was not time to finish the project. They were a part of the me generation, not unlike our generation. They wanted to do their own thing. They were looking for an easy way out. And they found the excuse, it's just not time. It's easy. It's easy for us to say, one of these days, I'll, I'll get around to it. One of these days, after I get my bills paid, I'll, I'll start tithing. Say, I love you, Brother Don. Well, one of these days, when I get everything in order, I'll, I'll go to my pastor and tell him, Preacher, I'm ready now. You put me to work. Give me an assignment in this church. I'm ready to go to work. One of these days, after I get all my ducks lined up in a row, after I get all my bills paid, and after I do all that I want to do, I'll get around to it one of these days. Haggai exposed these people's excuse. Someone said it uniquely like this. We lose what on ourselves we spend. We have as treasures without end what we give to Him. Did you hear that? I know that's a strange way of saying it for our mindset, but it's right on, isn't it? Listen to it again. We lose what on ourselves we spend. We have as treasures without end Whate'er we give to Him. I'll get around to it. It's just not time right now, preacher. Give me a little more time. I'm going to get it all in order. And you know what happens, don't you? Do they get it all in order? Do they get all those bills paid? Do they get their ducks lined up in a row? Hardly ever. And come back with an excuse a year later, and still a year later, and still a year later. I'll get around to it, preacher. 
Don't, don't rush me. It's just not time yet. Just not time yet. God may be calling you to get after something He wants you to do, and you're tempted tonight to say, God, it's not time yet. My children are too young, or my children are too old, or I'm too old, or whatever the excuse may be. I'll get around to it one of these days. We need to hear that word very carefully. Notice not only the word about the excuse, but I want to share a word with you about the exhortation. In verse 3 through 11, it's a powerful exhortation given by Haggai to the people who are making such foolish excuses. And look at verse 3 and 4. Then the word of the Lord by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Sarcastically, almost. Haggai says, What do you mean? You telling me it's time to build your own house? Why do you neglect the house of God when you're living in luxurious accommodations? The word sealed houses talks about a a sealed roofs, a sealed ceilings, suggests a rather luxurious home. And, and the implication is, you've got a home, you've got a nice home. And most likely, the indication is there, because they were given the timber on their way back to rebuild the temple, and there's not much timber available, and it's only available in the mountains, it is very likely, highly possible, that they have been diverting Many, much of the timber designed to rebuild the temple to build their own houses with. And they ended up with nice, luxurious homes. Have you seen that? How many times in the history of God's people have God's people allowed the work of God to go unaddressed, the work of God to go unprovided for, the work of God to go lacking when we lived in our sealed houses? And complained, oh, it's just not time. I'll get around to it one of these days, preacher. There's a forgetful attitude here expressed toward God. God has always warned that the attitude is the forerunner of the action. The attitude is the forerunner of the action. Will you listen to that? I want to share this with you. You've heard it before, but it's so pertinent for tonight. Sow a thought, reap a word. Sow a word, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, you'll reap a destiny. Now run that by again and apply it. So I would say to you and me, watch your thoughts. They become words. Watch your words. They become actions. Watch your actions. They become habits. Watch your habits. They become character. Watch your character. It becomes your destiny. It all begins with the attitude. It all begins with the thought. It all begins in the mind of man. The attitude to forget God. We just walk away. We act as if He is non-existent. Lack of appreciation. Taken for granted. Living presumptuously on God. And that's exactly what these people are doing. They have come back. They're to be commended that they're in the crowd who left Babylon. All the Jews didn't come back. They're to be commended that they would be willing to take the trip 
and, and extend themselves like this. But when they get there, they lay down on the job. And the work of God is done. Fifteen long years. The temple lay in waste with nothing but the foundation and the altar. Fifteen years. I want to ask you tonight, my friend, because I love you deeply, you'll never know how much I do. Because I love you deeply, I want to ask you, is the work of God in your life in danger of dying? Is the work of God in your life in danger of being laid aside because of a forgetful attitude toward God? The work of God in your life. How long has it been since you have taken stock of who you are? Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Consider your life. Is there anything about your life that defies explanation on human terms and can only be explained as a miracle of God in your life? Is there? Most of our Christian lives can be explained on the basis of ingenuity, temperance, ability, talent, skill, money, resources, etc. What is there in your life that can only be explained by somebody saying, that's God? That's God. Is there anything in your life so unmistakably evident that they simply would say, that's of God, no other explanation. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. What difference are we to worldly, ungodly, heathen people around us if everything we do can be explained on the basis of human talent, ability, money, etc. That's the Hollywood mentality. That's the Wall Street mentality. That's what your pastor was talking about this morning in his message on contentment. What is it about you that stands out so remarkably different that everybody who knows anything about you has no explanation for it except to say that's of God? A forgetful attitude toward God, but he also exhorts them about the futility of the accumulation of gold. Look at verse 5, if you will. Now, therefore... Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Say that out loud with me, everybody. Consider your ways. Do it again. Consider your ways. Look at verse 6. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Where did the money go? You got paid, and before you got home, you put your money away in a bag, and before you got home with that payday, two-thirds of it had disappeared, even before you write a single check. You understand? Anybody ever had that problem? That's true of our nation. That's true of nations around us. I am no economist. I don't know a thing about it. Only thing I know about the stock market is that it's a whole lot like the weather or the temperament of... I won't say that. You can't trust it. It's going to go up or going to go down. Only thing you know about it is temperamental, okay? 
But I want to tell you what I feel down deep in my soul, and I concur with your pastor this morning. I am not an alarmist, and I am not a prophet. I'm not a prophet's son, but I want to tell you, you and I are headed to some dark, dark days. God is in charge of the economies of the universe. Not man, not Wall Street, not the IRS, not anybody else. God is in charge. And He can merely take that that you have. Look at it there in verse 9. Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is waste, and you run every man unto his own house. God says, you, you've got all this stuff in your hand, and I just blow on it, and it's gone. That's all God's got to do with the economy of America. And that is to blow on it and she'll sink overnight. Just blow on it. That's why I wanted to call this gone with the wind. What you have and what you're invested in and what you're depending upon can disappear like blowing a dandelion when I was a little boy. Any of you ever do that? I don't know what they call those critters. We called them dandelions. We'd pluck that dandelion with all that fuzz on the top and we'd blow it and it would rush out into the air. That's what we're counting on. That's what we're depending on. We are in trouble, my dear friend. We are in desperate trouble. All God's got to do is blow on it and it's gone. We make all this money and we run home with it before we get home, two-thirds of it's gone. He blows on it. And he asks the question, why? Because my house is waste because of sin in your life I've blown on your income because of sin in your life I've cut the holes in that money bag so that you couldn't get home with it because my house lies waste consider your ways consider your ways did you hear the story about the two old men who were attending the funeral of a very wealthy man. And they were talking just after they had lowered his body in the grave, talking to one another about the wealthy man. One said to the other, Well, how much did he leave? Have you heard? The other fellow said, Yes, everything. How much did the wealthy man leave? How much did the poor man leave? It doesn't matter. Everything, right? For naked came you out of your mother's womb, Naked you shall return to the dust of the earth. You'll carry nothing with you. God all got to do is blow on it. It'll be gone with the wind. The judgment of God upon a nation of people who needed to consider their ways. Consider their ways. You think you're getting ahead by neglecting your prior responsibility. You think you're going to get ahead by not doing what is priority in your life. And you push priority items down the list and do them when you can, if you can, if you feel like it. And think that you're going to have time to get ahead. You won't get ahead. You understand that? Can somebody say amen? You don't get ahead by putting God last place. Did you hear about the old southern preacher who put it like this, a quaint way of saying it. He said, when God gets His, and I get mine, 
Everything's fine. But if I get mine and take God's too, what do you think God will do? He said, I think he'll collect, don't you? I think God will collect. It's a great collection day coming out there, friend, whether you know it or not. A great collection day. Have you ever been in a place in your life where you were called upon to to do something sacrificially and you obeyed God and you did it and upon doing it, you worried yourself sick, how you ever going to get it taken care of? You knew God wanted you to make the commitment and you did, but you didn't know how in the world you're ever going to do it. You ever been there? Years ago, pastor of church in Gadsden, we were going to build a new sanctuary. It's going to cost us three quarters million dollars. Take a million and a half to build it now. We set out to raise the money. One of the many ways that we raised the money, one of the primary ways, was to ask our people to give a three-year pledge on the building program, over and above their tithe and offering, to pledge X number of dollars per week or month for three years to pay for that sanctuary. Well, the deal was that when we called our people and challenged them to do that, the preacher was to be the first to make a pledge. Isn't that nice? Say, that's nice, preacher. The deacons were to have been the second ones to make a pledge. They're going to take the preacher, then the staff pledge, then the deacons pledge. We're going to have a big banquet one night. They're going to report the collective pledge of the pastor the deacons to the church and then ask the church family if they make a pledge that night. Well, there's a lot of pressure put on me to start the ball rolling. I didn't like that, okay? You understand? I didn't know that was part of the program. I probably would have resisted the program, okay? I didn't like that idea too much. But anyhow, you had to do it. You had to do it. Gene and I prayed about it. We talked about it. We, We wrestled with it for some time. And we came up with what we thought, given our income, would be a worthy pledge. We made that worthy pledge, and I didn't think much about it except to worry over it. It was way beyond what we were able to do. Three growing children, pastor salary. It it was tight, okay, you understand? I never will forget. I never seen the connection. I hadn't even told my wife this. I'm so thick-headed. You figured that out by now. I hadn't seen the connection between the two. That was early on in the program. It took us a year to raise the money, a year to build the building. We celebrated building the building in the fall of whatever it was. After we built the building, we occupied the building, everybody was happy, we all started paying our pledge. And I never saw the connection until this week. 1978, October. In that very period of time where we would just begun to start paying our pledge off. For three years. I was preaching one Sunday morning. I'm not told many folks this. I'm reluctant to share it in the typical place. But I think I can trust you guys with it. I got through preaching one Sunday morning. Walked out the aisle to go to the back to greet people like I usually did. One of my deacons stepped out in the road there and said, Preacher, go back there and sit on the front row. Well, I thought I was about to get fired. I didn't know what was going to happen. No. 
but I did what he told me to do. I walked back and sat down here on the front row. After they been, everybody sat down. Everybody knew what was going to happen but me. And I sat on the front row. Chairman of our came out of the choir loft up to the pulpit, called me up there, called my wife and three children up beside me. And he had his hand, all five fingers, stuck in five different places in the Bible. And he turned to one and read that passage of Scripture. And he looked at me and said, you remember that, Brother Don? I said, yes, sir. He read the second one. Remember that, Brother? Yes. Remember that one, the third one? All of them were passages of Scripture that he had heard me preach on, preach from on the subject of the provision for, from God for our needs. Got to the fifth one. He was through. He said to me, Brother Don, we know that you folks need an automobile real bad. They didn't have to look real far to realize that my little Volkswagen was dead upon dying. I mean, it was headed to the grave. And my old Chevrolet was worse than the Volkswagen. We needed a new car real bad. We needed an all. We needed transportation. I began to pray about it. The limit of my faith was that maybe God would help me find a good deal on a good car, swing a good interest rate, and you know how we do. That's as far as my faith went. I'm sorry to the deacon got through reading those verses of Scripture from behind the pulpit, and he said, Brother Don, we know you guys need a new automobile. Our church would like to give you a new car. He handed me the keys to a brand new 1978 Buick LeSabre. I never owned a new car in my life. Can you imagine what I was like? I didn't know whether to faint, scream, shout, faint. I didn't know what to do. Before I could do anything, he said, I want to recognize Brother So-and-so. Man in the church bounded up to the platform, never been said a word in church before nor after. He was a man who owned the dealership from whom they bought the car with the collective money from the church members. He stood there in front of me, and he said, Brother Don, only thing I know better than one new Buick would be two. My corporation would like to give your wife a new automobile. Handed her the keys to a 1978 Buick Century. Both of them were parked headlights to headlights in front of the church, and I didn't know it. After church was over, we went out there and celebrated and oohed and odd, and Gene got in one of them. I got in the other and drove it home. Later that afternoon, I was to drive across the county to start a revival meeting in another church. Got in my new car to drive to that revival meeting. It was the first automobile I'd ever driven that had the, the um, where you change your lights up, dim, and, you know, on the, on the hand under the steering wheel instead of on the wheel, uh, on the floor. You know what I'm talking about? Y'all with me out there? Well, I didn't know they made cars that way. So we're starting off in this dark, and I come up on this car, and my lights are on bright. I start stomping on the floor trying to dim my lights, and I couldn't find anywhere to dim them. And I also discovered it was the first car I had ever driven that had the tilt steering wheel and it's tilted up toward the dashboard. I just figured that's the way they made cars in those days. So I got behind that new car, trying to stomp around and dim the lights and tilt the wheel back so, you know, I, I was in a mess. You could tell I was a ignorant guy. Enjoyed that immensely. In one fell swoop, God got us out of debt, gave us two new automobiles, insurance paid on them, tax paid on them, and the man made a promise, as long as you're here preaching, I'm here, you won't have to do anything but put gas in it. I'll take care of it. I wish I'd have thought of it then. 
somehow there's a connection between that moment when my wife and I thought, no, we can't do that. We can't handle that much. But God handled it for us. Yes. You see what I'm talking about? Yes. Is there anything in your life that is so supernatural, so unmistakably birthed and born by God, that nobody can explain this work of God? And if I had time tonight, I wish I could preach another hour. I would take you to the ultimate picture in my mind that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. What is going on in this temple life of yours? They needed to finish the rebuilding of that temple. What is God doing in the temple life that is yours? The prophet made two recommendations as a step of action. His first recommendation, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Sit down. And evaluate. Would you be willing to do that? Tonight? Sit down. Stop. Dead cold in your tracks. Consider your ways. Answer my question. Is there anything there? Unmistakably of God. Will you do that? Will you let the judgment of the word of God. Begin to be your standard and your only standard. How can you put the first things first? First of all God's work. Must come before our work. I don't know if you understand how practical I'm trying to be tonight. Let, let me bring it down to where we live. I know it doesn't happen at Glen Ayers. But I'm out there preaching revival meetings all the weeks, you know. And, and I hear, hear this person say, Well, Brother Don won't be able to be here tomorrow, Don. I said, Well, oh, I'm sorry. Why, why is that? Well, my grand young is playing softball. I said, have they ever played another game before? Yeah. You've seen them play before? Yeah. You reckon they'll play anymore in the future? Yeah. You think you'll get to go? Yeah. So why can't you give one night of the week to God first things first? God's work must come before our work. God's ways must come before our ways. And the second reference he makes is to make right what is wrong. Consider your ways. Whatever's wrong, make it right. You know what it is. If you'll sit down, get still with an open Bible before a holy God, and turn all your gadgets off so that you can't be interrupted by anybody, and consider your ways. Whatever He shows you, whatever you need to make right, make it right. Make it right. Make it right. Duncan Campbell was preaching during the Great Hebrides Revival on a Tuesday night. And a man who had been there every service in the middle of his sermon jumped up and rushed out of the church in a huff. The preacher didn't know if he was mad at him or, or what was going on, no, have no way of knowing. He didn't come back until the very last night of the service. As soon as the service was over, the man came up to Campbell. And said, Mr. Campbell, please excuse me for leaving so abruptly the other night. But he said, I had to go. Campbell said, why? He said, because I heard a dog bark. Heard a dog bark. He said, what do you mean? He told his story. He said, while you were preaching, I heard a dog bark. Over 20 years ago, I stole a dog from a neighbor in our neighborhood, a thoroughbred dog that was a significant animal. I stole him and sold him not long after that. And he said, when you were preaching, 
I heard the dog bark. And I knew I had to go and deal with it. He said, I've been gone from the services because I spent every spare minute trying to trace down the owners of that dog. When I found the owner, I discovered that he was dead. He was left, left behind him, two sons. He said, I finally found the two boys. Told them my story, how I sold and stole his dad's dog and I've come to them to make it right with them. They agreed upon a price. He added 20 years of interest to the price and settled what was wrong in his life. Maybe you'll hear a dog bark tonight. Go and make right what is wrong in your life. Go wherever you have to go. Go immediately. Go immediately. And then look at the encouragement. Last few verses. Verse 12 through 15. The encouragement. Look at verse 13. What God does. What does God do for all those. Who take the steps to make things wrong. That are wrong. Make them right. He does three things. Or two things. First of all. His presence is always available. God's presence is always available. Look at verse 13. Then spake Haggai the Lord's messenger. In the Lord's message unto the people. Saying. I am with you. Said the Lord. What a verse. Notice. The Lord's message in the Lord's message. The Lord's messenger in the Lord's message. When you're living in that arena, you're in good shape. If God's message is on you, and you're in the arena of sharing that message, God's presence is always available. And it is for you if you're a child of God. Amen? He will never leave you nor forsake you. God's presence is always available. And secondly, God's power. Is always available. Look at verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Joshedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Who is he? The Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. The people were stirred up by the preaching of Haggai. He gave them enthusiasm, gave them excitement, gave them a, a driven understanding that they must obey God. And they went to work. And the Lord of hosts was with them. Thirteen times in 38 verses in Haggai, the phrase, Lord of hosts. Appears. The Lord of hosts. The Lord of the mighty armies. He is the strong one. Always available. Always available. The hosts of heaven are invisible. The hosts of heaven are invincible. The hosts of heaven are innumerable. I'd like to preach about that. That'd go for a while. You hear that? Invincible. Invisible innumerable are the host of God at our disposal. God had to show Elisha that by taking the scales off of his eyes at Dothan and looking up at the mountainside surrounding and saw the angels of God, the host of God, waiting at his beck and call. He's the God of the impregnable. 
He's the God of the impassable. He's the God of the impossible. Joshua and Jericho, impregnable city, came tumbling down. The Red Sea before the Israelites, impassable. A great, great gulf split the sea. Impossible? God's son Jesus fed 5,000 people with a few pieces of bread and fish, plus all the women and children. Impossible. The Lord of hosts, he's the one who permeates this message. He's the one who says to us, consider your ways. Consider your ways. It all belongs to him after all, doesn't it? Look at chapter 2, verse 8. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. Matthew six thirty three sums it all up for us tonight. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Say it aloud with me one more time. Consider your ways. Father, we love you. We praise you. We honor you. We thank you. We magnify your dear name. Come, Father, and encourage the hearts of all your children here at Glen Iris tonight. And may your will be done. And, Lord, should any of us hear a dog barking, help us, Lord, before the rising and setting of another sun to go and make things right. It's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.